Welcome to the Agent Carter radio program by Fantastic Geek. We are the official, unofficial voice of the marvelous Marvel film and television community. My name is Matt, and joining me once again is the man who says hubba bubba to the siren of the strategic scientific reserve. It's Pete. What's buzzing, cousin? Oh, mommy. It's the biggest horsey ever. The Agent Carter radio program for episode 204, Smoke and Mirrors, is brought to you by... Ma Carter handkerchiefs. Tomboy girls, dead sons got you down. Ma Carter handkerchiefs, there we News of the hour! In this segment, we run down the top stories of the episode and give you the latest and the greatest and the need to know. Pete, what do we need to know first? Fairy tale beginnings, Matt. In a flashback that almost seemed like maybe you were going to get a young Agnes Cully, a, a future Whitney Frost, they flipped the tables on our expectations, which is always good writing. And instead, we find out that uh, this little girl trying to save the, uh, the princess from the dragon is instead one Margaret Carter. And her little brother, I'm sorry, her older brother, Michael. Pete, she's a self-saving princess and might be on this isolated island all by herself, looking up at the sky, watching those new aeroplanes. <laughs> she's a modern gal, Pete, even though she's a gal of uh, 100 years ago. This was 1920, right? Or is that the, uh, pardon me, that's that's Broxton, Oklahoma later on. But uh, this is almost 100 years ago, but it's a... Uh, it's the kind of self-saving princess that looks to the future and a long, long time ago. Yeah, but Margaret Elizabeth Carter, as her mother calls her, will be the death of her yet. A little bit of a loaded line, given the death we saw later in her story. And uh, she's told by her mother that uh, one of these days she's going to need to start acting like a lady. And I, I think there's some... Some pertinent discussion we're going to have to have a little later in our uh, talk about this episode in terms of what that means. But we go back to Peggy in the present, okay, um, with uh, Dr. Jason Wilkes still struggling there in his non-corporeal form. And I enjoyed that they addressed, Matt, the elephant in the room eating and this apparition of a man. Despite the fun that we had last time with the he's dead, he's dead, no, he's really, really dead, he's dead, oh, he's back. Um, it has now led us to a point in this episode where it's like, what do you do with him? We have a couple of hints where, where things might be headed. Uh, here we are four episodes into this 10-episode run, and his character is a little bit of a question mark in terms of in terms of what what his future is going to be it's it's kind of a fascinating place for a character that uh that that has been on a, certainly a unique journey thus far and a lot of fans have wondered on twitter elsewhere you know <laughs> how is this guy alive he can't eat <laughs> so i think to be out in front of this well before because obviously these are written and filmed long before people are talking about this for them to wait this isn't like 
the Grease live? They didn't no. just do this? <laughs> there is Grease in this scene, Matt. <laughs> but uh, not the Grease live. Um, all through the magic of the Hollywood, as we learn later in the episode. Uh, but Jason explains that he has uh, no sense of body at all, but that it's worth it. And uh, suddenly... There's some frustration, Matt. Can can you feel the frustration building? Pete, I don't think that they uh, meant things entirely literally. I think they were talking about a metaphor. But Pete, we're on at the uh, we're we're on at the uh, the drive time hour here on the Agent Carter radio program. So we're I think we're just going to leave it at that. But Peggy definitely does talk about the un. <laughs> there's something going on that's unmentionable. It's it's dealing with unmentionables, and, and I think we, we should just move on. Well, speaking of mentionables, Matt, a neutron reactor comes up, and Dr. Wilkes reveals that three years earlier, Whitney Frost put in a patent for a neutron reactor 1,000 times more powerful than one of note in their world. And uh, if he is regarded as a genius, he says that Whitney would be something far beyond that. Indeed, a brainiac. We are out up in front as to her, uh, her, 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 well, brainiac nature. And Pete, we go from kind of unmentionables to mentionables to uh, going to Whitney Frost's boudoir, where Pete, she has delivered what every girl wants to have delivered in her boudoir a cage filled of rats yeah her uh her help there notices that it's moving and uh very curtly is sent out of the room and uh we've got some lab rats there matt for what experiments we'll have to see indeed a cage of, of rats never seemed so creepy we get the title card, and uh, quick as it is, we then uh, meet up with Jarvis, who has stopped into the uh, Chadwick Election HQ. Certainly interesting to watch uh, in this country, now that we've kicked off the presidential election uh, season. Um, and uh, he's picked up Peggy a button so that she can, uh, she can wear it and, and, and fit in Pete, but uh, she won't wear it. And uh, we get a quick expositional recap of things that we we need not repeat here on this radio program but then pete she notices something yes whitney has been a no-show at her production so obviously there's some intrigue given what wilkes had noted about her past uh there also is noticed that there's a man who has been wounded just as peggy's attacker was last episode and there's a nice kind of one two three beat pause while jarvis figures it out again the increased pairing of jarvis and carter this season just uh, comedy gold yeah and i particularly enjoyed where they took it in just a little bit uh but with the tranquilizer gun here uh is it for bernard the uh flamingo no of course not it's for the koala but it's a good day for felony, Matt, as we end the first act. And Pete, we couldn't mention Bernard without mentioning our pal, Ian in the UK, who, uh, who chastises uh, we, uh, we uh, you know, savages for, for having any debate 
colonists, Matt. Indeed. Colonists. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, he reminding us that Bernard is, of course, the way to pronounce it, and the rest of us are just all, just all, uh, I don't know, knuckle draggers. Act two and Matt Dateline, Broxton, Oklahoma, nineteen twenty. Now, Pete, many of many of you out there might be saying, "Ah, it's the Dust Bowl," but tisk tisk, Pete, the Dust Bowl, also known as something that sounds a lot more sinister. The Dirty Thirties uh, would only start uh, 14 years after this uh, 1920 dateline. So with that, Pete, take us into the non-dusty Oklahoma. We have a little girl working on a radio. She's making notes as she does this. And mom comes over and says, look at this mess, Aggie. You know, you need to clean up because Uncle Bud is coming. Um the little girl notes how uh, the mother had been complaining about the radio and now it's fixed. By the way, he's not my uncle. Pete, I'm starting to think that there's something funny up there. And when Uncle Bud arrives, he's awful familiar with Mama Wilmer. W- Wilma, rather. Not Wilmer. That would be that's a whole different storyline. <laughs> um, and uh, they they just seem to be, I don't know, friendly in a manner that uh, suggests to me that Mom's earlier line that she takes care of her family, the, the two might be connected. And speaking of connected, Uncle Bud and Wilma are going to go upstairs, but not before there's a fun line about uh, if, uh, if little Aggie doesn't smile, her face will get stuck just like that. Yeah, and, and really creepy stuff from the uncle there. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the response, though, from the little girl, and kudos to the little girl in the scene. I thought, you know, she did a really good job. But, you know, why won't you smile for Uncle Bud? Because I'm thinking. Girl power and brain power, Matt. And probably thinking how Uncle Bud is actually Uncle John, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Do we, Pete? Here, let's have a quick, quick little tangential uh, kind of. Are we, uh, are we recording? <laughs> we're absolutely recording here. Who do we blame more for the sins of the flesh, Uncle Bud or Wilma? It takes two to tango. It does. But I kind of feel like Wilma has less options in 1920. Like I kind of, kind of condemn her less for her, her, her bedroom antics than I do Uncle Bud, who clearly is. Is is using it to hold power over her, and if this is if this is not an episode, nay, a series about the power of women overcoming such boundaries, I don't know what is. But Pete, back to the present day, their present day, our present day, nineteen forty-seven, and uh, Whitney Frost is conducting zero matter experiment number one. What is zero matter experiment number one, Pete? Well, Matt, that is the experiment of picking up a rat. And closing your eyes. Yes, Experiment I... number one notes, nothing happened. Yes, the, the face scrunch results in no change for the rat. Um, with that, hubby Chadwick arrives, slowly, increasingly buffoonish as these episodes go on. It's a really nice, uh, subtle way in which his... Uh, his uh, dare say his cuckolding by his wife alone um is 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 slowly occurring um and uh he he doesn't notice any of that though but pete he asked her to wear the dress with the uh 
you know, around the, the neckline. Uh, yeah, he's he's talking about her her yeah. For the Life magazine shoot here, okay, the emphasis on his beautiful girl, everything there. You know, she had been running lines a moment ago, not, of course, you know, doing experiments with lab rats. And just after he leaves the room, she is able to absorb the rat. Matt, how is she still hungry? A director and a rat now. Well, that's one mystery. But here's here's two things that aren't mystery, Pete. Life magazine and magazines in general will never, ever go away. I'm confident of that as we as we talk. <laughs> but Pete, the rat absorption, by the way, uh, does increase the crack on her face. And as yes. was noted by, uh, I think, perhaps Mike D on Twitter, not to be confused with uh, Mike Sorensen. Or Mike D of the BC Boys. That, that's true as well. Not to be confused with either of the other two um okay it's another experiment where the crack gets bigger uh maybe it's time to stop the uh stop the experiments uh we flip to jarvis uh banging on the door of uh mr hunt there using a false voice it's a ton of fun there it's 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 the best bad american accent from a british actor um down to the the obviously willfully uh kind of silly lines of you know he's gonna start squirting lead right Uh, neighbor comes out ma'am go back into your domicile (laughs) um it's uh, i'm telling you the show is better for having used a jarvis that has a little bit more comedy this season um and all to proper effect mr hunt goes out the back door where he's shot by Peggy, and that just works no problem, Pete, right? Yeah, because uh, it was enough tranquilizer to take down a rhinoceros. She still has to wrestle him and then knock him out, put him in the trunk. Jarvis, uh, too soon, says this was easy as pie, and he is hit with the tranquilizer dart. Okay, Jarvis. There is such whimsy this season and the fact that there's the quick fight and the guy gets, you know, gets hit again with a dart and then the quick cut to the trunk and he's still up and still, you know, fighting them. It's 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 marvelous fun. It's, as you said, Pete, jarvelous fun. There's an energy to this season and clearly, again, the editing done well in advance of uh, viewings and ratings um, for it's second week agent carter with just one episode as opposed to two held its ratings last week at a 0.9 we know what will happen if those ratings stay the same i mean yes there are options in this day and age of netflix so on and so forth but if they're going to go out matt they're going out on their terms and i don't think anybody watching this show season one to season two can't say it's not better and I think it's worth keeping in mind to this shift that we all know is going on with time shifting and all that, that seems like it's been going on for the better part of 10 years, what it means for Hollywood and how numbers are dissected and all that, that's still being understood. So I don't know, maybe a point nine is the new okay. It certainly wasn't last season. Maybe it is this season for an in-house production. 
regardless, let's enjoy the show while it's here, while these episodes are, are, are sizzling and just so much fun. Despite whatever imperfections we might find along the way, incredible, incredible fun. Pete, we get the act break and return to Peggy driving back to Stark Manor with a snoozy and drooling Jarvis against the window. Not her lucky day, she laments, and Sousa is there to meet her. Thompson has uh, called him, though he's AWOL in this episode, to approve her vacation days. And he immediately knows that she is trying to brush him off. He's got the frost file there, and uh, he notices that Jarvis is, uh, you know, up against the window there. Peggy uh, chalks it up to overindulging in drink, and then the thumping in the trunk. Oh, that's just a possum. Or once the voice comes out of a possum, which we know to be impossible, and Sousa is no spring chicken, uh, she could have a man stashed in the boot, Matt. What? Pete, they talk so funny. I think she must be talking about the rear section, what we might call the trunculars. By the way, Pete, so glad that her vacation time has been approved. Otherwise, she'd be back in New York and this story wouldn't be occurring. Hand of the writer. Yeah, but um, here is where Sousa uh, is going to team up with her. And uh, he, he's, you know, obviously looking to help. Um, and uh, she, Peggy, is thinking that they could try to kill Mr. Hunt. Yes, she also defends that illegal kidnapping. And it was just just for the briefest of moments I was saying, ah, how how far we've come from the 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 uh shall we say more complex days of the prior decade where the idea of the government illegally kidnapping someone might kind of, you know, be a story point worth discussing. Instead, here it's just it's Peggy being Peggy. We know she's in the right. And, and you know, if that's a bit of meta commentary as to where we're at as a world, as a nation, whatever, I don't, I don't quite know what the comment is, but it, it was a fleeting thought. Um, however, Pete, we cut to Sousa questioning uh, Mr. Hunt, that head of security, um, the latter of which says he's he's a pro at interrogation, he's ready for for the best that Sousa can give him, and then Pete, Peggy sticks him with a needle. Yeah, and then explains how, uh, well, you fought the Japanese, you were in the Pacific Theater of War, then you are surely familiar there with malaria, um, that he only has so much time there to be able to stave off the effects before it kills him. We then flash back to Bletchley Park, which, Pete, I know you know, was the central site for Britain's code breakers during World War II and run by the government code and cipher school. And, Pete, Peggy Carter's there, of course, because she's a British lady helping the war effort in 1940. Yes, and uh, Mr. Edwardson asks to have a word with her after she's shown everybody her sparkly engagement ring uh congrats in order but additional congratulations matt because she's been offered a spot by the soe the special operations executive what you mean to be a code breaker there pete 
No, they are training field agents and they need to send women in. They would be unexpected and forward thinking of the Brits here, breaking that glass ceiling long before anybody else had had considered it. But that they are recruiting her. Peggy uh, really doesn't see this as an honor, just having gotten engaged. She doesn't believe she's meant to be in the field. Matt, is this Peggy Carter? It doesn't feel like it, Pete, but regardless of what the future of this show holds, this year, 2016, uh, in in another Marvel story, as I think many people know, will feature uh, another point in the Peggy Carter uh, timeline, a, a rather final point. I like that this episode and this season is taking the opportunity to give us a bit of a background on this, on this, you know, uh, person who was was breaking the mores of her time. And if if we are in the the, the fleeting days of the Peggy Carter stories, um, I like that we're taking this look back. Why, Matt, how uh, civil of you. But speaking of civility, Mr. Edwardson here notes that this is Peggy's big chance to do her bid for king and country, but she's going to discuss it with her fiance again. Who is this imposter? Pete, this is 1940s lady, and I'm okay with that because I think we know that she's headed to to much bigger uh, things. I like to the smash cut that you know. I just don't know if I got I, if I got it to be a secret agent. Smash cut to Peggy injecting uh, malaria, or at least what we're told is malaria, into the bad guy. He's got 20 minutes to talk and get the anecdote. If not, you know, it's like or the out antidote. The anecdote could could be additional. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes, indeed. Well, anecdotally, the anet- <laughs> the antidote anti antidote. Because it's going to stop the doting, indeed. Yes. Uh, but we really come to find out that Howard uh, tried to cure the common cold. Instead, like a lot of Howard inventions, they wind up going uh, backwards. He instead created an intense strain of the cold. And that is what uh, they just infected him with. And uh, fun note, that is the uh, most passive thing that Howard Stark has ever given to someone. <laughs> We have an act break and return back in Oklahoma, and uh, the years have gone by a bit. 1928. Eight years, in fact. Uncle Bud is on his way out of this uh, particular business arrangement, if you know what I mean. Um, and uh, Bud Schultz is kicking out mama and daughter alike. Uh, although, Money on uh, the counter. Yeah. that Got to be out of there tomorrow. And uh, young uh, Agnes, l- little older now, sketching, uh, you know, some pretty intense stuff in her book at the kitchen table. Yeah, it looks like her reactor thingus. Mm-hmm. That's a technical term. Uh, however, Mama takes glee in the fact that women aren't headed into the science field. Pete, there's just glass ceilings on top of glass ceilings. And Mama tells her that she needs to focus on her face. Hey, Pete, that's what writers call irony. <laughs> I don't think, Matt, it's out of character to present us with this shrewd mother that that all you have is is your moneymaker, you know, up here and yada, yada. 
but to do it in in such a a stark way no pun intended um i don't know again there was a line in this episode between you know peggy's hesitancy to enter the field and and you know her seeming clingingness to her uh her fiance to hear with um agnes being given the the rejection letter and uh you know the mother telling her you think you're so smart you know haha they're not gonna allow girls in here the mirror again you know the 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 titular aspect uh you know when there was a shot of her mother you know holding her up to that and later peggy would look into the mirror um you know on the wedding day and and afterward um i don't know it felt a little incongruous in terms of the message i i will disagree pete in that i think not only do, do these dual flashbacks present whitney as having been on the same path as peggy but having uh, broken bad uh but I, I i suspect that uh females in their audience probably see more uh familiarity in the in, in this old-timey ancient world than perhaps you and i do um and i wonder if that's what physicus and butters are tapping into a bit here just to say yeah, it's easier to get out of this orbit, but this is still an orbit that you're pulled into uh, even, you know, close to 100 years later, if you go back to, to the 1920 uh, Genesis here. In present time, 1947, the phone rings. Um, Whitney there is, uh, I believe it was her husband on the other end being asked that, you know, is she, is she coming? She's an hour late here for the... Uh, photograph with uh, life magazine uh you know what happened to the show going on it's your face that they want and we notice here that the crack on the left side of her face is noticeably bigger also in the present day peggy and susa uh break hunt the goon and he starts naming names he speaks of an old conspiracy pete including the one what took out president mckinley uh, sad day that we all remember. Yes. Uh, and what are they called, Pete? At least this this local branch, the Council of Nine, and all their meetings are recorded, Tricky Dick Nixon style. Yeah, and there was a name that they uh, received there, Thomas Gloucester, who is the Roxon CEO. Peggy, of course, knows him because her name is Agent. Matt, the Council of Nine, also credited with uh, the forerunner of the Dust Bowl, Black Tuesday, the stock market crash. They just have their hands in every in every pot here, it seems. Yes, but we're told by uh, Hunt that there is a storage room uh, at the Arena Club that the Council of Nine records all of their meetings, surely to be used against them, right? Yeah, not quite sure why they do that, although I guess it's good that they, that they keep prodigious records of their nefarious doings. Pete, the story moves to Jarvis taking a Dr. Wilkes dictation regarding his atomic cohesion 
Um, and uh, this is also when Wilkes seems to notice a black matter crack on the blackboard, not seen by Jarvis, and the first kind of uh, tolling of the bell that uh, that not all is well with Wilkes. Matt, is it me or is this doctor acting a little strange? Oh boy. On we go to Sousa, who bursts into the room. He calls the SSR, and then the 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 nameless extras of the SSR meet at the office to form a dual team to take the arena club. This one goes here, that one goes there. That's when Vernon Masters War Department arrives to audit the files and put everything that's actionable on the back burner. Yes, we are finally in episode four, his third episode, fully introduced to Kurt Wood Smith's Vernon Masters. Uh, we'll talk a little bit in our uh, communication segment where we had some uh, some spies contact us about uh, the character's name. We have an act break, and then uh, back we go to Masters, who is indirectly complimenting slash, you know, not complimenting Peggy, but also trying to dig a little deeper on her, her sources, her goings-on, etc. And uh, great line there, Pete, you know, she might be okay, but her friends can still drown. Yeah, and what was really effective for me in this scene, the great writing was the independent thinker and thinking line, okay? Um, that Masters has been told by Jack Thompson that Peggy is quite the independent thinker. Peggy retorts that it must have been meant as an insult, um, but he talks about the opportunity to be a team player the same way he's gotten his hooks into Thompson with playing ball here. Um, but they're going to keep this uh, CI, this criminal informant confidential and um, that he, she's refusing to tell him who it is. Um, she shoots back with, we'll call it independent thinking, but Matt, you know who else were independent thinkers? The Hollywood 10. Oof. Indeed. The, the implication there that uh, be too independent and you'll be suffering the consequences. Also a little, uh, little nod there to some of the, the future red baiting and red scaring that will go on in Hollywood. Right, and not wanting to see her friends, namely Sousa, drown here. It's something for her to mull over. We flash back to uh, Hempstead, 1940. Okay, for the engagement party of Margaret Carter. And uh, what what should be a lovely scene is uh, still kind of, I, I won't say broken up, but it's made a bit choppy by this notion that uh, Peggy simply won't be a spy. Her and her fiancé have, have discussed it, and uh, brother Michael nonetheless kind of uh, pushing her, prodding her, saying that she can do it. Yeah, and uh, what starts here with the idea of the brothers kind of goading her to uh, to drink heavily, something that as a tomboy in, in her youth, she uh, obviously uh, did with her brother. But, um, you know, her fiancé here, Fred, uh, leaves there to... Uh, to get some more libations, and we come to find out that it was Michael 
who has recommended his sister for the SEO. Uh, but Peggy is saying this is not the life they envision. This is not the life they want. Back we go to 1947. Sue says uh, is still on Peggy's side working for her. And uh, a really nice uh, presentation. We're not in on the plan initially, but he accidentally on purpose lets Hunt go. And uh, it's it's really well presented. Peggy kind of popping up as Hunt leaves and going in and checking to, to check on Sousa. Uh, of course, uh, they plan for Hunt to go straight to Whitney, which he does because it's a bit late in the hour. Yeah, and uh, they have also planted a wire on him to make sure that they can listen in on what happens in, in what's a pretty effective staging of that type of scene. Of course, when Hunt arrives, he won't talk to the dame. He needs the husband and he needs a drink. This could take a while, Matt. That it could be. Could it take the length of an act break? I think it could. And but it does. <laughs> not before uh, a final flashback. Uh, here is Peggy's wedding day. We can only assume from her wearing the dress that are a really advanced fitting. Uh, Mom is crying. There is the SOE envelope. And uh, there's a uh, need for the handkerchief again. But suddenly we get a car honking. And uh, Mom goes to see who it is. And before you can say, where's Michael? Uh, we hear the mother say, what is it? We see her outside at the car, there's another man we can only assume is Peggy's father or a dear uncle. It's never clear. Uh, and two officers who suddenly remove their caps and Peggy squeals Michael. Pete, certainly a, a sad and heartfelt moment there. Yeah, we close the flashback with a shot of the SOE envelope again, um, which is picked up off of the dresser and the engagement ring is put down as Peggy again checks herself out in the mirror and heads out of the room. Then we move to the present day where Jason notes he's feeling... Uh, pulled by what we know to be the dark matter break and uh, again kind of getting the wheels turning in my head in terms of what the future of this character might be having seen or learned of when peggy learned of the demise of her brother michael she references that here um jason says that it would be real easy to let go and she explains that her brother taught her to fight, that he is cut from the same cloth, that he just needs to hold on here. And as she tries to hold on to his arm and can't, Sousa happens to see this. Indeed, intrigue on top of intrigue. And uh, it's all interrupted by them overhearing, courtesy of that uh, aforementioned bug on Hunt, that uh, Chadwick is home and... Uh, well, Pete, what more can you say than Whitney Black Matters the goon? <laughs> well, before that, um, I again, I dig the Lady Macbeth angle out of um, Whitney Frost 
you know, once Hunt has explained to Chadwick that uh, Peggy kidnapped him, um, that Calvin says he's, uh, you know, going to have her job, have her deported, and it's Frost that cuts to the chase. What did you tell him? Okay, and he's clearly understood at this point that it was a ruse, the uh, malaria injection that he thought he was dying. They wanted names. So what did you give them? Um, And it's at this point that uh, they start to go back and forth, Calvin and Hunt, over who's going to tell the council. And suddenly Frost wants to show her husband something. And again, uh, the the sexism of this world, he's trying to poo-poo it, but uh, she asserts herself, as she learned, no doubt, from her mother, that, uh, you know, Mr. Hunt's made a mistake. We all make mistakes and they can be fixed. And it's here that she puts her hand on his cheek. Whitney, what are you doing? What is it? Stop. Signal lost, Matt. What did he do? Well, he got he, he got himself uh, pulled into the, the 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 void of the dark matter. And Pete, in her delivery there of you know it's a mistake. Everyone makes a mistake. Mistakes can be fixed. I I wonder if to me the reading was almost uh, a, a maternal one, and I hope that that's not the. I don't know, speaking to some sort of uh, <laughs> deep Freudian analysis here, but uh, I just thought it was interesting whether she's feeding off of the social expectations of the day or or we're responding it to the, the or responding to social expectations of our day or whatever. There's just something different as she kind of ascends the power ladder and takes control of the situation and uh, and ends Hunt's life. We end, Matt, with Hollywood at 1934, and a young Agnes Cully is dropped off. Uh, She's outside a theater where Teresa Montgomery's The Spanish Tower is playing. She doesn't have enough change in her purse to be able to go in, and a kindly ticket taker allows her to head in. Uh, you know, this this will just be that one time to provide this nice escape from the real world to help you forget your problems. OK, but it's at this point that she runs into a talent scout. And Pete, knowing how late it was in the episode, I thought initially that, oh, this is just going to be the talent scout. The story that we've all heard before, the pretty girl, you know, kind of discovered and. Initially, that's how it appears to be. Yes, there's the callback to the line said by, you know, John Budd uh, in terms of uh, smiling. But he's quick to say, hey, I'd love to be an agent uh, for you and a model, maybe even an actress. But the way he closes the space between them, there's a suggestion there of this, you know, sexual power dynamic, gender power dynamic. And that's when we see her perhaps crossing that line or at least committing to this is the next step. This is the step for survival. Well, you know, he tells her it's uh, Hollywood. You can be whatever you want. Cut back to 1947. Her hands are shaking after having absorbed Hunt. Okay. 
the left side of her face now even more apparent. And uh, she tells her husband that was her fixing another one of your problems. He asks, what are you, Matt? Whatever she wants. What lunkheads deserve some time in the joint? This list of baddies will tell us just that, Pete. Let's start with Chadwick. I dig the dichotomy that as this guy is on the rise, despite the fact that he's pretty much been emasculated by the council of nine behind the scenes that, you know, he's they're taking the zero matter away that they're going to, you know, just put him in the Senate to be a puppet. That on the outside, he seems to be gaining steam. His uh, senatorial campaign is in full bloom. And what on the other side, his his wife, by the end of this episode, completely takes control and he's in the backseat. If there is a if there is a gender story to be told by this season and gee whiz with a female lead and female co showrunners uh there should be for goodness sake um if there's going to be all of that then he is this great lens through which you know he's not he's a bad guy from what we can tell he's not a bad husband he's not you know he he doesn't beat her he's not he doesn't ignore her if anything he's trying to use the best attributes that she has in her professional world to to be concurrent with his professional world and to work together as a team and to complement each other and all of that it's just he didn't get the headline that she's she's on the way up to a to a higher floor than he is in life well let's talk about Whitney Frost and in a flashback heavy episode to get both Peggy and young Agnes's perspective coming up to see her you know, the survivor really of a rough childhood gifted, but twisted obviously by what she saw with her mother. Yeah. As, uh, as alluded to before, uh, I think it's, it's clear what her mother is up to and I don't particularly condemn. Well, how about this? I don't greatly condemn her mother. I certainly don't condemn her mother more than Bud for making the choices that she has as a single mother, uh, an uneducated mother in 1920 middle America. Um, that said, th- th- there's kind of a cruel twist to the knife that Whitney essentially learns how to how to take those lessons and make it 2.0. To say, hey, there's this new and emerging world in Hollywood. There's this new and emerging definition of what it means to be a woman in Hollywood and what that gets you in terms of independence and money and all of that. However, she still is kind of, um, she still has found the worst of her mother's job and brought that to the world of acting. Now that she can finally or is forced to finally reveal what's happened with the zero matter to her husband. Obviously his days are numbered because as somebody who's continually uh, cleaning up his messes or who points out that she has to clean up his messes as if she's going to keep him around for that. But I like, you know, again with the, the shift of power that we've in, 
in fact seen the entire time in name has not been the case now that she can absorb she's absorbed two men and a lab rat that we've seen um you know truly she is something to be feared and it's going to be interesting to see how her husband moves forward with this in mind it's a nice mystery as to where her powers are going what happens beyond the the growth of the crack and whatnot there, there's just evidence here of the show being able to breathe a bit more with the the greater episode order how about hunt matt we had seen him before and to get him in this episode i like what they did with his backstory he could have just been a thug and you know again kudos to the writer there was far more characterization going on with him pete you're right for a character that only appears in what it's just these two episodes right uh he was he was revealed and and masked he's been in, he's been in three been in three yeah so for a character with a, a short half-life and for a character who for for whom there is not required a a backstory to include his service record to include the notion that that these are bad guys in this in this uh in this group at the at the arena club but you know we're coming off of world war 2 we're coming off of lots and lots of heroes being amongst us and and hunt is one of them even in his uh demise here yeah the torture at the hands of the japanese and you know ready to not break yet what does he do he breaks at the hand of peggy carter and later chadwick throws it back in his face we hired you cuz you wouldn't break and guess what you broke uh but it's effective it absolutely is effective. And uh, I guess adios, Mr. Hunt. Well, uh, unless we find him someplace with that director and that uh, lab rat, you know, all hanging out together. <laughs> At least they got some neat. That's true. That's like some uh, that's like a like like a dolly painting from hell or like one of those those mall paintings. That's like, you know, James Dean and Elvis in, in the Nighthawks. If it's only made of velvet. But Pete, what about Vernon Masters? Kurtwood Smith, we've talked about, uh, you know, at length on this uh, show so far. He elevates every scene he's in. And to have that wonderful scene with Haley Atwell, it's just two pros, you know, eating up the dialogue, the independent thinking line. And to finally have him revealed here to our hero um it's on and maybe even more than frost he is somebody that um peggy should fear and she does fear in the context of what he can do to not just susa's career but susa uh with what we know of his connection to the council of nine He's just such a wonderful choice because he is all his previous roles. He is father. He is villain. He is all of that. And he imbues it in in the the character of Masters, where he's not showing up with this with this, you know, red flag saying, I'm a bad guy, watch out. He just could be protecting the turf of the War Department and the FBI. That's 
in a, in a passive way, in a well-meaning way, we just happen to know otherwise. Classified Top Secret. Holy mackerel. Time to take a gander at what the G-Men don't want you to know. Pete, what do we have classified as top secret? Well, I think they're really entwined in the course of this episode. Let's talk first about Peggy's past, and then we'll talk about Whitney Frost, Agnes Cully's past. Yeah, it's it's an interesting presentation to have to have these two ladies um, with I dare say equally sympathetic uh, backstories, if not if not the backstory of Whitney Frost being more sympathetic. And uh, it's kind of nice to get that to get that look at them. Who would have figured that uh, Margaret Carter went hesitantly into field service for the SOE, um, ultimately winding up alongside of uh, Steve Rogers? Um, again, I, I struggle with it. It, it doesn't seem like it's the same character. Does it work in the service of drama and again, defying our expe- expectations? Absolutely. But uh, the way that it happens, okay, your brother was killed. So now you're, you're going to be tough. So, you know, feminism is a, is a choice because something bad happened to you. She couldn't have made that choice. It couldn't have been written another way. It felt a little false, Matt. Here's why I disagree. I think that it's important to remember the, the context and the time, the world in which she was born into. This was just simply not an, an option. This, this Peggy of 1940, uh, three, four, five, six, seven that we've seen in in the movies and the the one shot and the series. This is made possible by this uh, social and dramatic upheaval that is World War II and is is the need for uh, a different role uh, of of women in society, uh, thought to be short term. Um, uh, the irony, of course, is all those women who who. Were, were sent back to the traditional li- life then uh, you know raised a generation of women who really uh, hammered home feminism a generation later but I don't condemn either the story or Peggy for saying this was a world that was never presented to her as an option so of course she she didn't question it were there women who questioned it sure but that just kind of uh, th- that wasn't it just kind of wasn't on her radar, so to speak, um, particularly at a time of, say, increasing war clouds in the, the 1930s. You have a you have a duty to do for king and country, and if that is use your maths to do uh, code breaking at Bletchley Park, great. That's a great way to contribute. That frees up an able able bodied man to fight. It's in the process of being pushed into the SOE and pushed into what she's really capable of that she learns to be the Peggy Carter that we know. I do appreciate that we've gotten her backstory now, regardless of the decisions, regardless of what it might make us think in terms of how she arrived at that point in her life. 
Um, and it's particularly effective here contrasted with that of Agnes Cully. My question for you, Matt, is, you know, we, we see the, the sad story coming up. We see a girl who is gifted scientifically, uh, able to put back a radio, uh, later drawing these, uh, you know, tremendous blueprints for what might have been her reactor. Is that realistic that a girl that hasn't because she's been rejected by uh, the this school that she's applied to. Is it realistic that she's able to come up with this uh, level of uh, technological savvy? I I love what they've given us in Frost. I'm worried that the connecting of the dots doesn't quite make sense, even in a comic book milieu. I think it might be a fiction step i don't want to say too far but let me put it this way they might they might have put in two scoops of fiction where normally uh one is uh, one is found that said i'm reminded of uh steve wozniak of uh, of of apple fame who had an interest in his uh teenage years to do um circuitry type stuff um and because he lacked the materials to do so, he would just do it on paper. He would practice it on paper for hours and hours, draw out the circuit, and then go back and double-check the, the I, pardon me, I don't know the terminology, but to kind of double-check that the connections were all there and the circuit would work. So he reached a point when he actually got those tools where people were saying, wow, you can do this all in your head? And it was, well, yeah, because I practiced it over and over and over at home. So... Again, is that quite the same as I'm building this fantastic reactor in my head and on paper? Not exactly, but it's not that far from the guy who helped modernize the personal computer doing a similar thing in his in his bedroom at his kitchen table. Dr. Wilkes and the pull he's feeling to this uh, dark realm. Um, no one else obviously can see what he's seeing again not being technically in the the same plane as everybody else what do you make of this poll here matt will he go into the light i mean the dark in so far as his character probably has an arc too and uh, they're probably spending precious little time on season three in the course of making season two, but I, something tells me he's not going to stick around uh, for a potential third season. Um, so that is a way to foretell his doom. I'll mention, Pete, that regardless of what uh, may or may not happen in future Marvel movies, it's characters like Wilkes that make me regret that there is this growing void between Marvel movies and marvel television because if you had a large ensemble scene uh involving peggy carter in an upcoming uh, marvel movie where people from her past might all get together that's an opportunity where you call up this guy who plays wilkes and say you know we're, we're, we're going to give you good money to be an extra in a big crowd scene um because there'll be that payoff kind of similar as as they've done with the roxon guy um Slightly different situation, but that that type of connective tissue there. Um, this not being the case between Marvel films and Marvel television, it's an opportunity lost. Long distance. 
we want you to flap your lips, write a telegram, or even send us uh, the Twitter. And Pete, I think we have some. Yes, we had a couple communiques here sent to us by some rather alert agents via Facebook. Laura James wrote in another great podcast just to say Jack has called Kirkwood Smith Vernon in both the first and third episodes, smiley face, which was echoed by Daryl Washington. I just noticed that during the replay. And Matt, I've not gone back and checked. I certainly missed the name, and we've made no bones about the fact that the character hadn't been named on screen. Tonight was the first time the character was completely named on screen. So now we know it. His name is Vernon Masters. But thank you, Laura and Daryl, for alerting us to that. Pete, it takes a village. Nay, it takes an agency to to get this uh, to get this job done. So thank you. Uh... Thank you, both of you, for uh, for the assist there. Pete, a couple of tweets to share. First, from Mike Sorensen. He says, darn it, Red. I can't say how happy I am that at Tahiti Smith, which is, uh, which is uh, Kurtwood Smith's uh, uh, handle there on uh, Twitter. It's all connected. But anyhow, Mike says, I can't say how happy I am that Tahiti Smith is a V question mark heavy this season. I think we all agree there. Um Mary Kirk says, so this, at least prognostication here on Mary's part, this is the season where we transition from SSR to S.H.I.E.L.D. That is my bet. And lastly, Pete from from, uh, Bob Keeley, what a fine episode of Agent Carter. Agree all the way around. I mean, Kurtwood Smith elevates everything he does. Um, Is it possible we're going to make the... Uh, transition to SSR. I mean, they they wiped out the one shot um, where uh, Peggy moved from New York to DC with Howard. So again, that that remains unwritten to this point. And uh, yeah, I, I think pound for pound, this was the strongest episode of Agent Carter uh, season two yet. Certainly a fun, fun episode. And uh Pete, it of course is in Hollywood, the land of stars. You're practically a person of glitterati fame. How can people be in touch with you? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R-6997. Followers. Can't be wrong. Who's going to be number 7,000, Matt? Oof. A lucky, a lucky boy or a lucky girl out there at Radio Land. While I am personally on the Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the radio program by being in touch with Fantastic Geek. That's fantastic with a PH in plenty of ways. Send an electronic letter to us on the Gmail, post a note on the dot com, or tweet us your telegraphs on the Twitter. Don't forget, Fantastic Geek is the way to go. And Pete, there's one more way. Yes, facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek, all one word with the PH. You'll like us on that machine today, and we're there to stay. With that, I'll say goodbye, good night, good luck to one and all. Pete, with what wacky words will you close tonight? Ma'am, please go back into your domicile. <laughs> <laughs>